Hello and welcome. My name is Roni Firon, and this is The Bigger Picture, where we sit down with experts to hear about their journeys, their insights, and the big ideas that drive them. Stay tuned for today's episode. In today's episode, I spoke with David Shapiro, an expert in the insurtech space who combines a Silicon Valley cowboy past with the old school culture of the insurance industry. David explains why we're seeing the emergence of a great number of tech companies within the insurance space and why this is just the tip of the iceberg. David has been involved in companies such as Click Software, Plank, Bought by Many, Sayada Labs, and Ernix. We spoke about David's experience in the space, his insights about insurtech specifically and entrepreneurship more generally, and about the track record we're seeing of Israeli high-tech companies making a global splash and bringing innovation to the forefront. So without further ado, here's my conversation with David Shapiro. David Shapiro, welcome to the Bigger Picture podcast, and thank you for taking part in the Unicorn series. To start, can you tell us, what does insurtech mean and what is so revolutionary about this new field? And maybe for us to better understand this new field, it would be good if you could give us a bit of an overview on the history of insurance itself. Okay, first of all, Roni, thank you for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. And I'll do my best to answer the question. Obviously, it's very subjective. It's the way I see insurtech and the insurance industry. So first of all, I'll my definition of insurtech, insurtech is a word meaning insurance technology, but basically I, I see uh, two types of insurtech companies. One is a company that provides technology for insurance companies, can be pricing technology, it can be core IT systems, it can be data. So that is one part of the insurtech industry. The other side is an insurance company providing insurance products, utilizing new technology. And when I say an insurance company, it doesn't necessarily have to be an underwriter itself that's carrying the risk on its balance sheet. It can be an intermediary. It can be a broker, an agency, but using a very even consumer-oriented and can be direct-to-consumer, but it's the part of providing an insurance product and insurance products includes providing the claims and the service and everything like that. So that is the other type of insured tech company. And sometimes there many insured techs are both the technology and the insurance company. An example could be Lemonade, which is right. a full stack insurer and has its own technology somewhere and or next insurance, which started as more of an intermediary, but now also is, is a full stack, has its own carrier, its own underwriter. Hippo, which started entirely as an intermediary, as an MGA, and is now an acquired Spinnaker, which itself is a carrier. And then there are companies. So these are the insurance companies, InsureTech, let's say, that provide the product to the consumer, to the business, depending what kind of uh, insurance it's selling. And an example of the insurance technology companies running place from Guidewire and Duck Creek, which provide robust core IT infrastructure for insurance companies, basically the bread and butter of what makes the plumbing, everything of the technology of the basic that helps enables an insurance company to run its business, to the unique providers of advanced technology in a place like Ernix, which provides pricing analytics and pricing personalization and personalization for insurance companies, to companies like um, Plank, which provides very advanced data insights based on the AI. And Others of that sort. So those are, if you want, the two edges. And there's many places in between. I'll, I'll, I'm, some of these companies I'm mentioning, I'm personally involved with. But there's one insure tech called Bought by Many, which is a pet insurer. Actually, today it's called the Many Group, or it is branded in Sweden and the U.S. as Many Pets. But it is also a basically an intermediary, even though it's, it was founded by insurance people and technology people. So maybe that's a very good example because the two found the founding team of Bought by Many founded about like, seven years ago in the UK. One is an insurance hardcore actuary who worked at insurance companies and also was at McKinsey for many years, decided that there's 
a need for new kind of insurance products to be offered to certain groups of individuals. It's a direct-to-consumer play. He partnered with a very prominent or veteran technology guy, also from the UK, but was many years in the Silicon Valley. And the third founder is a, is a marketing guy, D2C marketing guy. And so they, they bring in this combination of the technology and the insurance. So that was, I guess, a, a, my overview of InsureTech. Of InsureTech today. And why is this field so important today? Why do you think it's gaining such momentum? That's a very broad question. I'll do my best to refine it, but also respond. First of all, the InsureTech is definitely, or advanced technology and insurance is definitely, it's well published and talked about in the media. It is also being uh, substantial amounts of uh, capital are being raised by private InsureTech companies and also by um, public ones that have become public. And some of the names I mentioned are also public companies. So number one, yes, a lot is happening. On the other hand, if we would measure the amount of premium in an insurance in the insurance industry, there's X amount of premium, probably in trillions of dollars globally annually being provided or written for property and casualty insurance, what we'll call non-life insurance, just to keep us in one part of the business. If we measure the amount of the percentage of premium that goes through insure techs, let's say, on delivering the product side from that premium, I think we'd find that it's a very, very, very small percentage, maybe even less than 1%. So the, the whole thing is that the impact of insure tech, I think, has yet to come. Number two, if you look at the valuations of a traditional publicly traded insurance company that could be selling tens of billions of dollars in premium annually, you'll find a small multiple, I don't know about small, you know, a single digit multiple, let's say, on the amount of premium to the market value. Again, this is, you got to look at the stock market. I'm not trying to advise anything, but you just see. And on the other hand, insure techs come out and there's, for some reason, they're getting very, very different and larger multiples on the premium, even though their stocks have been going up and down. So it's like two different worlds. Again, that yes, a lot of people are talking about insure tech and the media, it's being raising a lot of capital that's raised there. On the other hand, what is the result that we as consumers or businesses are seeing in the insurance products offered to us if we measure that by the amount of premium that is sold by these insurtechs? It's probably far from the impression. So I, I so first of all, I, I think that's, again, this is my, my subjective opinion, but when I look at that, I think this shows a huge opportunity on the one side. On the other side, also, it's a bit lopsided. I don't not sure what we're measuring when we're saying insure tech is such a big thing right now. And this has to do also, why is it happening now? And then this is relating, I think you asked me before, which I didn't respond to, is the about the insurance industry. So if we just look at the insurance industry, and again, I'm looking at, it's basically what we're doing as consumers or business when we buy insurance, we're buying a peace of mind. We're buying something that we, we, you know, we hope we never have to use, right? We're paying you an X amount of $1,000 buying for, I don't know, what kind of insurance. We hope we never have to get the, I don't know, $100,000 or whatever that if something, God forbid, happens, especially if it's life or health insurance. It's an investment we're hoping we will never have to use, which is difficult, by the way. I remember after many years that I'm in my early 60s. And so I, and when I was younger and family, I, I, life insurance is very important. I had, so I spent a lot of life insurance. And then towards a few years ago was, it's, you know, you have more assets, you, you know, the kids are independent. So you, you reduce the amount of life insurance. And I said, what? You know how much money I spent on this? Tens of years, I've been paying a lot of life And it's a waste of money, right? Thank God I'm still breathing, right? And so, <laughs> so it's, uh, on the other hand, the insurance company, you know, made a lot of money. It's a strange kind of product. That's number one. In that, just talking about that product, if you look at it from the insurance company side, actually, the insurance company, when they sell us insurance, they don't know that I'm going to live to be the, you know, hopefully, whatever. Uh, 120 but, at least. Uh, uh, late 90s <laughs> is fine. I want to die healthy. But the thing is, the, they don't know. You know, let's say, let's go on something nicer like property and casualty, you know, auto insurance or home insurance. They don't know if, I'm, if, if my house is going to, not, no fun, but be theft or burn down or something, you know, no loss of life or anything. But they don't know, right? But all they have is statistics. They know if they know the statistics for this particular type of house of car, then if you insure enough houses and cars of this particular type, and it works out that you're going to be 
the losses you'll have to pay aren't covered and much more by the premium from everybody. But for one individual, it can be different. So basically what that means, and let's call that loss ratio, the amount of dollar paid for handling claims and for paying claims of a dollar premium coming in, we'll call it loss ratio. It's comparable to the gross margin in manufacturing. Well, when you sell a computer or a microphone, you know how much it costs to build it. And so if you know it costs $10 and you're selling it for $15, then your gross margin is $5 or what is that? 33%. Well, you don't know that in insurance. You don't know the loss ratio until the duration of the term of insurance has been covered. And that can have a very, very long tail. So basically in the insurance industry, you're selling a product without knowing the, you're only assessing the gross margin based on the statistics of what you're insuring. Now, this comes back to how long insurance has been around well, for many, many hundreds of years, okay? You can even say, if, uh, there's some good presentations about this, but you can even say thousands of years, if you, depending on what you're defining insurance for. Let's start when I think it's the first actuarial tables were then taken for statistics, well, I think were for life insurance, I think was in the UK, probably about five or 600 years ago. Wow. And so that's basically where the statistics was. And it was for a very good cause because people wanted to insure, I think it was the, the widows in a community. And when, I, I don't know if mm-hmm. the men out went out to work or to war. And so they would pool amount of money. And then if something happened to someone, then the widow would get the insurance. So it wasn't called that. But so then you built statistic tables to see how much. And so this is how, the, so actually statistics came out of insurance, probably, and, and it should be- Interesting. Out, it's, very, it's very interesting. But so it's a whole, and statistics is mathematics. And so insurance, which has been around for many hundreds of years, you walk into an insurance company in the UK or in Europe, you'll find insurance companies that have been around for many hundreds of years. Sometimes if an insurance company is headquartered in Trieste, like Generali, well, Generali has been around for hundreds of years, and Trieste was part of Austro-Hungary, and then it was part of Italy. And so actually- but Generali was there before the whole time. There's a, <laughs> the oldest substantial U.S. insurance company. I think it's called the Philadelphia Contribution. It's been around since before the United States. It's been around since like 1736, I think. And you walk into places like Royal London in the Royal London, UK, and I think they've almost 400 years. So it's just like you don't find how many industries have been around that long. And between you and me, it's the same business these hundreds of years, Right. You might have computers now to do the math better, but you're taking a group of risks, people, companies, ships, and you're assessing the probability of something happening to them. And you're selling an insurance policy. You're taking the risk on you at a rate that you know, based on statistics, that you'll be able to pay back any person that that gets damaged. But overall, you'll be making a profit. So let's fast forward now five, 600 years, and we're looking at an industry that is entirely based on mathematics or very analytical. It is, has been around for many hundreds of years. The whole thing is based on trust. And you're, today, I mean, you know, they're backed by governments. In the good old days, they weren't. So, you, you know, the insurance company didn't have the money to pay, didn't have the money to pay. Now, you, by the way, as the insurer and the underwriter, you were liable. You, could, you would lose everything. As they say in Louisiana, you would leave your cufflings on the table. <laughs> but now, looking at it today, the basic is still there, okay? Now, yes, you can do calculations much quicker. Statistics has improved substantially mathematically, but they're just, it's the same modeling techniques. And what may be yet, what I think, yes, has changed over the last, last I'd say, couple of decades or, or a little bit more is a few things. First of all, it's the computing power and the capability, the accessibility of this computing power on the cloud including data storage. And so there's one thing that, yes, you could do things with the computer all the time, but you only had so much computer in your server room, even if you're the largest insurance company in the world. Today, with you really can access a lot of computing power over the cloud. And the second thing is, we'll call it machine learning and AI. Right. I'll get back to that in, in a second. But I think the second thing, I think machine learning is the third thing. The second thing is the amount of data. You have much, much more data in through social media and through just satellites taking pictures, you know, monitoring of cars, you name it. And it's all logged and documented and accessible. I think the last every year, I think there's more data than was in entirely something like that. And so it's all there. And that's, you need data to run on your, for statistics to run on that. So there's more data, big, big parentheses here. There are some things you cannot use in insurance. There's personal data about, you cannot use even for my Facebook page. And unless I give you permission, which I 
no reason for me to do that. You can't use it. So there's a lot of data, but not all of it can be used, but still much more data. So there's more data and there's more computing power. And there is uh, machine learning, AI, which has been around, by the way, for many decades also, but, and also it's way above my head, but machine learning to some degree, I think is statistics. And so it's not as if, but when you have enough okay. computing power, you, you can run it often enough, you can get very, very exact and interesting things that you can probably not get from the standard statistic models. And so that now enables to do new things, potentially in assessing the risk, right? And building in assessing your loss ratio or gross margins, right? That could not be done in the past, okay? So it's a sort of like something like a perfect storm between data, computing power, and we'll call it machine learning, even though, again, I'm I don't see AI as this magic thing. We were doing AI in the 1980s and, and before that. So it's not, but still, there is something you can, that now you can get much probably a machine, everything else been equal, a machine learning algorithm. I'm not an actuary or a statistician, but a machine learning algorithm built w- appropriately with enough data can get probably very good prediction on loss. And so there is an opportunity here that an insurance company potentially can have a better prediction on the loss. They can price it better. We can, it's better, better for everybody, right? We, right, insurance, right. So. Also for the consumer. Big time, because we're basically pricing to our risk and not, there's not a lot of overhead because of in, things are not exact or not accurate. So there on one hand is an opportunity, but there are a lot of challenges here. And that's why I think still... It's a very small percentage of the premiums actually being used in that way. The first one, as I mentioned before, it's regulation and how data can be used. You can do a lot of very bad things with this data, including pricing illegally, for instance, just based on things you're not, you're not allowed to do, gender, religion, color, whatever. So you can't. And one of the challenges in a machine learning algorithm is you don't know what it's doing. Right, right. It might be picking up on these things. You just don't know. And so... What you have to do when you're pricing in insurance is you have to say based what you are pricing on, what are the parameters? A transparency. It has to be a transparency. And so you have to, and this is challenging when you use machine learning. There are some places where it's easier. I mean, if you're, everything else being equal, if you're underwriting a business, a business-based thing, I think about it is public, right? And so it's easier, even though some things you're still, you're not supposed to use. If you're insuring somebody's car, it's much more difficult because you might, there's things you just can't use or ensuring somebody's life also. You can't use, look at their picture and, unless they're giving it to you. And, and so it's, that's number one. The second thing is that what insurance companies have learned over these last few centuries is that it's the long-term play, meaning your loss ratio one year is meaningless. Your loss ratio over 10 or 20 years is what right. makes a difference, right? Because right. you can have a low lot, you can have like a low loss ratio five years straight. And then year six, you have a huge loss ratio and you go out of business and you can't go out of business as an insurance company because you can't pay our life insurance. You're, it's against the law. You go to jail. Well, no, I'm going to jail, but you're, that's why you're regulated. You have to have enough capital. Now, what that means is, okay, yeah, you know, two, three years, this machine learning stuff really looks great. Comes year number five and it breaks. And when it breaks, an insurance pricing algorithm or an insurance underwriting algorithm cannot break. By definition, if it does break, then the, all the logic of the capital maintained by the insurance company so that, we'll, so that we'll continue to be able to pay out its claims goes amok. So that's why typically actuarial models in insurance have to be tested on many, many data sets, probably with a history of four or five years or multiple years of history. Okay. Basically, that's if you want to take a traditional insurance company, it's been in business for hundreds of years and has book of billions of dollars of premium, which most of it is renewing year after year, it is very, very careful. And it has to be. It's a risk-adverse business. Right. And it's not as if, okay, so we won't be able to manufacture enough iPhones or, or chips for cars. What is the latest thing that is, you know, whatever, or for computers, you know, no fun, you know, we lose some money, but what, we can't pay insurance for some city in Katerina or whatever, in, you know, New Orleans, wherever it, where it might be, or floods in Germany right, or whatever. Right. It cannot work that way. And so what this means, if you have to measure four or five years, and I, I might, every insurance company measures it its own way, but in the, if you're looking for certainty of years back, you have to have these machine learning algorithms and this new data coming out running four or five years back before you're willing really to go all in and putting a lot of premium on it. You're willing to put a little bit of premium because I think that you know, let's say you have you're insuring a billion dollars a year in premium. You've been doing it for a hundred years, and you're you're good at that. And so you can take 
50 million, let's say, and when they experiment. Spread, ex, no, you, to some degree, okay, yeah. because your capital can enable you to do that. Even when it's working, it takes time. So now, on the one hand, there is a perfect storm of what he said, say again, uh, technology and data and capacity of computing time and machine learning. On the other hand, there are no perfect storms in insurance because there's no revolution. There's all this kind of evolution that's taking its time. And the last thing I'll say is that everything else being equal, if you take a, a book of insurance, or let's say someone is an insurance company that's been around in Western economy, Europe, UK, US, places like that for, I don't know, 20 years, insuring cars in Northeast US, let's say, and it has, the book of insurance has an annual premium of about a billion dollars, let's say. Even if you stop selling, this typically renews at an 80, north of 80% a year, meaning eight out of 10 customers will renew. So just if you stop selling any new insurance off of that billion dollars, just do the math, how long it's called a runoff. It's going to stay, you're going to stay there for many, many years. So even when things change in insurance, the consumers don't flip as quickly as they would otherwise. Well, now after all of that, I'm very interested in how you even stumbled on this field of InsurTech. Okay. So I started, I did my undergraduate studies in math and computer science in the mid-1980s. I think I, I finished in 19, I guess I started in 1982, I finished 1985, something like that. And then I did, I started while I was working as a software engineer. I also did my graduate studies in computer science and finished in the early 90s. And I was in programming, basically in software engineering in um, companies that always did some, like I said, 1980s, I was at a company that did AI, expert systems, that kind of stuff, using all, all kind of nice things. That was always when I started out being a programmer, and then I probably wasn't good enough at programming, so I moved into management. I was like a software manager and that kind of stuff. And then I moved on to the dark side into sales and business development, <laughs> but all, all in yeah. around these advanced technology systems to telecommunication companies. Big retailers, primarily, you know, Israeli technology sold into the U.S. I was born in the U.S., but I also spent some time in the 90s there with my family. And I was at a company that was very successful called Click Software. We IPO'd the company in March 2000. I was, I was very senior there. And we had one or two insurance customers, but they were more in for scheduling the field service part of the insurance, the assessor, something like that. I left Click Software in 2006 and thought I would consult to VC funds and startups. But after a few months, I saw that I was, I needed to have my hands on the throttles. I needed to, people weren't doing well as, as a consultant. People don't necessarily do what you tell them to do. <laughs> and I had friends who before that had founded a very interesting company focused on providing pricing optimization to insurance companies. And the CEO at that time was also a friend of mine, wanted to move on. And I found myself in late 2006 becoming the CEO of a small company called Ernix, which did pricing optimization for insurance companies, uh, property and casualty insurance, Israeli technology, customers. There weren't that many customers, but the few that were were primarily in Europe and the UK. And I ended up staying there for over a decade. Uh, I left in early 2017, and the company already became much larger than when I, than when I joined. But I came as an experienced sales, business development, executive, and that kind of stuff, and was humbled for many years, <laughs> still am, by the world of insurance. It took me time to understand this industry. And really, I still am a student of insurance, but I'd say four or five years to really understood the basics. But the customers of us at Ernix, or me as the CEO, and I have an insurance is all about credibility. And so I felt that my, the customers were insurance executives. They were not uh, technology people. They were insurance executives who run insurance businesses of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars or actuaries that do these models on pricing and underwriting for uh, insurance companies. And they're very, many of them, they're second or third generation in the insurance business, right? And they, they all, they don't move from insurance to retail to telco. They stay in insurance forever. They're very risk adverse. They're very analytical. And I understood that very well. I am analytical and mathematical. I'm not nearly as good at mathematics as they are, but I understand it and I like it. Even though I am a, to some degree, a, I guess, a Silicon Valley or startup cowboy, I come from a, my father was hardcore German. I mean, I come okay. from a, a, what we say in Hebrew, a yeke background. Where yeah. it's very, and so this risk adverse, it all it came. Made sense. <laughs> it all made sense to me. 
And I was able to, on the one hand, drive the technology out of Ernex or the solution, trying at least to make it as advanced as possible. But understanding that when you provide solutions to insurance companies, you have to walk before you run, you have to enable them. You can't throw this, it takes them time. So they they have to to see the vision, but so we would basically sell that we're talking about a vision. It's a, you know, you're coming on a five-year journey with us at our next, and we're here, we've been here for five years or 10 years, and we stick to our word, very credible, what we say, we don't oversell it, but we provide a solution and you're going to start here, easy for you to start here, and you're going to get there, which is very advanced. And it began working and I, and I enjoyed it. And I basically, I'll say, I fell in love with the world of insurance as a student, I still am a student in insurance. So after a little, like I said, a little over 10 years at Ernix, I when I left and I already could sort of more or less decide what I wanted to do, I already had four grandkids, now I have six. I, on the one hand, decided to change a little bit of my lifestyle, you know, business and pleasure, travel the world. I have all sorts of sport hobbies that I do, but also that to focus just on, on InsureTech. And I defined InsureTech, as I said before, either technology for insurance companies or an insurance company or intermediary providing solution based on new technology, but only companies that are 100% in insurance. I think that insurance is a profession. It's not a hobby, meaning you cannot be a provider of technology to insurance companies unless that's all you do. If you provide technology right. to insurance companies and to retailers and the telcos and the banks, I personally is not where I live. So basically I came into the world of InsurTech, let's say in a uh, it was a evolution, but when I was at Ernix, and InsureTech wasn't really a word until I think 2016, and so I, and I, that's after 10 years I was at Ernix. So I guess I actually stumbled upon it. If you want, it merges with what interests me: technology, mathematics, this concept of not knowing really your gross margins when you when you're selling, and that's where I am. And by coincidence, InsureTech has become very popular, and, and a lot of places are investing capital in it. But I I've been here from before that. I'm here because of the, my interest there. Interesting. It sounds that insurance really is such a different culture from the high-tech world that we know of, you know, moving fast and breaking things, so to speak. And so you found a way to approach this whole industry and communicate this tech world to them, which is quite incredible. So I'd like to zoom out a bit and talk about the human element of how to build a team around you. You've worked in many different companies and had many different partnerships. So through your journey, what have you learned about picking the right partners? What qualities are you looking for? That is the you used to $64,000 question. I guess today it's <laughs> $64 million. I don't know if that's enough the way people talk about money today. But So give us your two cents. It's probably the most interesting question I'll First of all, I'll say what you mentioned before about bridging the gap between insurance and technology. I just want to relate to that because that is the major, there's a big challenge here where we, from the world of technology and venture capital, look at a five-year span to build a company and sell it or IPO it or become, you know, five years is sometime we want to already make unicorns. That's the timeline. Unicorns exist today within sub, you know, within five years from day of, of innovation. Well, and then we're doing the next thing. And, you know, and venture capital funds have a 10-year term max. And that, so this whole timeline in technology and, and venture capital is, let's say, five years. In insurance, it's decades. Insurance, you're building a name and credibility. An institution. Exactly. Because that's why we buy insurance for peace of mind. And so there's a clash here between the Silicon Valley cowboy like me coming to a company like Ernix and like, let's do this real quick and we'll come <laughs> And today, somebody investing in or starting an insurtech and the time it takes for these things to really mature and happen, okay? So talking about now the team, I think, and the team, first of all, what is the team? The team are the partners are not only the people that found the company, the people that are funding the company. And so I think it is, the goal is to find, again, this is so subjective, but what I look for when I work with uh, companies and I today am involved with five companies As, and, and a half a year ago it was only three. So it's not, and I, this is, I'm already probably at my limit. It's not that I have, I don't, it's what interests me and what I like doing. It has nothing to do with the return. Okay. Okay. Yes. The return, at least for me, has been very good, but anybody that would put a dollar in insure tech 
five years ago would have gotten very good returns. So it's not any advice I'm giving is not financial advice, but how I look at what I think succeeds in insurance, what I like working with. And if I look back for the last five years, it has been successful. But again, five companies, there's not a a statistically valid sample. But first of all, it is 100% focus on insurance. Insurance is a profession. It's not a hobby. If I work with someone who thinks, you know, they were very successful in their previous startup and they were very successful in their second startup and they've been in retail and they've been in telcos and they've been in a little bit of banking, well, now we'll do insurance. (laughs) That's okay if they understand that they have now to do, they have to now learn a lot and continue learning from now forever and to make sure the people in their company learn the world of insurance. If not, it's a non-starter for me. Again, that's not that these companies won't be successful. So it's 100% focus. The second thing is there is no one insurance world. Insurance in the US is very different than insurance in the UK, than in France, than in Germany, and then in South Korea, and so on and so forth. And in the U.S., it's mind-boggling because each state has its own regulation. So if you're saying insurance, I'm going to do car insurance, and car insurance where? In the U.K. is very different than the U.S., very different than France. And so the next thing is insurance is, okay, what insurance are you doing? What type? Life insurance, auto insurance, all the type, and where? And that's all part of, once somebody gets understanding insurance, they very quickly understand that. So that's number one, that it's 100% focused. And it's un- and, now, and the next thing is you definitely, if you're going to be an insurance company or an intermediary, you're going to have to understand what you're selling and, and the fact that you don't know your loss, you don't know your gross margins. And that even, even if you're not un- the underwriter, somebody else is underwriting it, it's called capacity. They won't give you the capacity if you're not meeting the expected loss ratio. So it's not this whole thing about, you know, you, we're used to selling something and when we're done selling it, we're done. We have to support a little bit. Well, here it's the exact opposite. I mean, you speak to savvy and veteran insurance executives, and they, you know, they grew. I remember speaking with a friend who's the CEO of a very successful U.S. insurance company, multi-billion-dollar business. They opened a new line of business, and in their uh, within a year, they like grew from zero to a lot, over hundred million dollars in premium. And I really complimented this. This is great. He said, "No, no." I'm really concerned. I, I'm concerned that we've been adversely selected, meaning that basically, why do we grow so fast? Because we're selling a dollar for 80 cents. In other words, what they're taking on all the bad risks and that next year they're going to get a lot of claims. Okay. So it's all like the opposite to what we're used to. When insurance companies grow very quickly, they become, an insurance debt becomes concerned that they're, they have a book of business that is actually, they paid, they were paid less than what it's going to cost them to pay the claims on it. Okay. So if you're going onto that side of the business, you have to, if you're going into the, into being a provider of insurance, you have to understand that, that this, the part of, it's not just a direct to consumer or a digital play going, you have to, the, the capacity, the whole manufacturing part is very, even if you're not going to be the underwriter is, is very complex and different than what you've been used to. And if you're, you're just selling technology to insurance companies, they won't buy it unless you understand their business. They just won't. <laughs> You can't like, so you really have to learn it. So that's, so one thing is I think you need people that like the insurance business. And you can see that some of the companies work with like, you know, one of the, the one of the very successful company, a startup insure tech that provides advanced data to commercial insurers. The founder and CEO is the son of a very prominent insurance executive. Now, when he, you know, he was very prominent in, in intelligence and before that, and then he moved into, he started his own company, sold it, was for like three years at Salesforce. And when he, egg, he already had a lot of money, young guy, but he wanted to do something that he grew up around. So, and I mentioned, I found a founder many who himself was an actuary. So, so you'll see. So that's number one. So it's someone who's willing to play the long game, who's familiar enough with the insurance world and understands that it's a long-term commitment. Exactly. exactly. And I, like another individuals that was CEO of a very successful insure tech in the US. Before that was at McKinsey, but before he, and it was like also the second company he founded, he, he took basically a year off and learned insurance. So it's understanding, like you just said, Ronnie, it's the long-term play. And so you have to have that in the DNA of the founding team. And then you need that in the DNA of the funding team. Okay. Right? Right. Because they have to understand that also. The return on their investment isn't what they're used to in any high-tech company. Right. 
that the pencil so they can join later. I mean, they can begin funding the company when the company's around for five or six years. And then, or if they're joining in the beginning, they have to understand the duration. So that is the uh, the second thing, and that is more di- well. It's easier and difficult. One, it's difficult from the standpoint that venture capital fund cannot be an expert, cannot do just insure tech. There's just not enough deal flow. Okay. So there, by definition, it's going to be a hobby, not a profession for them, which is okay. And they, as long as they understand that everything they did was a hobby, and even if they've done in the past, they're very good at retail, they do see insurance is different, which is fine, but that the duration is going to take longer. And, and so, but that's on, if you want, on, on the funding team, then I'm a big believer in um, diversity. So inside the company itself, you don't want everybody to be like the guy I said in the beginning who's the founder. You want to have <laughs> okay. a lot of, you want to have cowboys also. So you have to have the insurance part, insurance DNA, but also the technology or the, Silicon Valley cowboy kind of DNA to put it together. There has to be some, there either has to be some very, very unique technology with an insurance wrapping around that a platform. One of the companies I work with has a probably some of the best data scientists in the world, but they're just now after like two years after a little less than two years after launching their product or their platform, which has grown immensely in the United States and in, in, in the side of cyber insurance is that they're now, now that they have enough, Data. Now they're beginning to move from the insurance platform side to the data science side. So they always knew they had it, but they knew that it was the second thing to do or build a technology first. Or you can be an intermediary or an insurance company that you're just off, just quote unquote, offering a really great customer user experience to buy. But then you have to move very fast and make sure that you're able to work with the capacity providers who are not used to companies growing, you know, tripling or more every year so that you're going to have the capacity. So, but there has to be this unique understanding of, of what you're addressing in the world of insurance. And last but not least, I don't know if it has to do with the, with the team is that you have to be looking in my book for a problem, looking for a solution, not a solution looking for a problem. Okay. Now, throughout this whole journey, what do you think are the biggest lessons that you've learned or some of the big lessons? <laughs> my take on the industry is it's all about perseverance. So first of all, it's, it's sticking in there. Just, and now you can't, at least I can't stick in there unless I enjoy the ride. So you have to enjoy the ride and persevere. Just continue doing it. Now, one foot in front of the other. Exactly. Now, and, and, and hey, sometimes you slip and you fall and you get up yeah. again. So, and so the next thing is, first of all, it's perseverance. And then, and then it's making decisions, making mistakes and learning. From the mistakes, and you know, the more I, I'm, I do so many mistakes, but I learn from them. I'm not smart enough, probably, to the smarter people are the ones that maybe do less mistakes. But the downside is, since they have done less mistakes, they're not as experienced as me as learning <laughs> from the mistakes. So the whole thing, it's gonna, we're gonna be making mistakes. In order to make a mistake, we have to make a decision. We have to measure things. We see we made a mistake. We understand what we did wrong, and we change it. And we're persevering, and so we're, and so we're, we're, we're moving forward. And there has to be a basic degree of intelligence. Okay. Because otherwise the two other things don't work. If we're making the same mistakes and we're not, and it's, I'll call it, uh, it's what it would be the word of emotional intelligence, industry intelligence, it's insurance intelligence, this case, intelligence about the insurance market for one of the things is that, you know, it's a long term play. It's not something that you, and so that, for, so you, you, so it's, I think these, the three components, probably in that order is perseverance in order to, so you, but you have to enjoy it. I have to enjoy it. So you have to enjoy it. You have to be able to stick in there and enjoy the mistakes. And the second thing is making decisions, making mistakes and learning from them, which means you have to be a learning organization. And that requires some basic degree of intelligence. Right. And a little bit of humility, I guess. A lot of humility. <laughs> <laughs> To be able to learn from the mistakes, to be aware of them, but yeah. also also to actually take those lessons into account. What advice would you give young entrepreneurs starting their first company today, whether it's an insure tech or in a different field? My first question will be, why young? <laughs> well, because well, I, again, I think that, you know, Satchel Page said it was the, one of the first Afro-American baseball players. He started playing baseball at a very old age, not very, in the, when he was 40, I think. Because there were the, there were no Afro American players could not play in the big leagues, in the major leagues. There were Negro leagues, and anyway, Satchel Page says uh, age is an issue of mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm saying that because if we look at some of the founders of prominent 
insure tech companies like bought by many, Lemonade, Hippo, and the founder CEOs uh, next. They're, I mean, as entrepreneurs go today, they weren't young. I mean, they were in their probably, I don't know, 40s when they started the company. That's very young for me. And now they're probably in their 50s. Maybe some of them, maybe I'm doing injustice. I mean, someone in like 30s. But the thing is, one of the main things is you don't necessarily have to be young. You have to be young in heart. And I think the challenge for a young entrepreneur is five years? I mean, five years is, is like what, one fifth of my life. What are you talking about? Five years. Yeah. So the challenge for somebody at Let's say a young, what, what is young? I don't know, 20s, 30s? You tell me. I mean, it, 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 it depends on the definition. And so <laughs> the thing is, I, I don't know if you are a young, then you have to understand you're going into a very, very long right. ride. And if you don't want it, do something. I mean, there are so many other industries to go to. Why go into insurance unless you want to go to someplace that is difficult? It is risk adverse. It takes a long time. And it's a full-time profession, not a hobby. Right, right. So the perseverance component you're saying for someone who's younger might seem a little bit more daunting. Yeah. And also, why do it? I was 48 when I walked into Ernix as the CEO, right? And I don't know if I would have wanted to do that before. And again, assuming that my parameters are correct, right? It's, if you go into insurance, it's just insurance, right? It's a full-time profession. Don't You can't do anything else. It takes a long time. And it is not easier than penetrating a different market. So why do it unless you have something either that is very unique for it, which by the way, data analytics has a unique value for insurance far beyond any other industry, I believe, because of what we mentioned before, statistics and data. So if you're, right. data, and you, if you're in data analytics, it's a great, I think you can provide a lot of solutions to acute needs and problems in insurance, but it can take you a long time. And if you go into ad tech or marketing tech or something like that, where or cyber, where things happen quicker. You have to really, like, unfortunately, I'm not an, a musician or an actor, but it's. I think if you speak with second generation actors or performers, what they'll say is, hey, you know, they'll tell their kids, only if you, have, if, if you just can't not be a singer or a performer or an actor, at least don't do it. Because it's difficult. Yeah, it's difficult and not so glamorous as it might seem, right? Well, the thing is, the problem is today <laughs> it has become glamorous. The problem with insure tech today, exactly. it has become a problem. It has become glamorous. So people want to do it because they think it's easy. Right. That's a misrepresentation in general of entrepreneurship and startups. The fact that, you know, it's easy and quick and doesn't require a lot of hard work. I think some people might have that misconception which is like 180 degrees. It is just incorrect. Yes, there are some coincidences where somebody did very quickly right. something happen. As a rule, most of the really successful entrepreneurs you're talking about failed the first, not two or three times, maybe even more than that. But they got up and kept on going. And, and even the ride itself of these successful companies, as they become bigger and larger and more successful, just gets even more difficult. It doesn't get easier. So, uh, yeah, that's very true what you just said. Right. And I think, you know, what you're speaking to is because it's such a difficult journey, you really do need to enjoy it. You need to fit into the industry you're going into temperamentally, right? It needs to be a good fit for you, but also enjoy the ride because it can get difficult and it is long and there's lots of ups and downs. So if it's not something that you would naturally enjoy, maybe. I agree entirely. I think that you have to enjoy the ride and the ride will include the ups and downs since so you have to enjoy the downs as much as the ups and learning from the mistake and hey you know look at the challenge and so yes exactly what advice would you give people today in order to make themselves more valuable and irreplaceable in their field of work are there any overarching truths that you found that make a difference the first one is no one is irreplaceable. <laughs> That's good to know. It is. I mean, it's amazing. No one is irreplaceable. It's important to know that on both ends, meaning if you're the manager or the CEO and you think if someone leaves, you know, the company is collapsed, it won't. And the other thing is if you leave, the company will not collapse also. That's number one. So I think the important thing is not to be irreplaceable, but to be employable, meaning you provide value. You provide value here. You can provide value there. And so it's understanding the needs of the industry you're in, 
technology, insurance, or technology for insurance, understanding in depth where the problems are there and what you're good at addressing. And I think, and applying it in, in the place you are at that particular moment. That I think is, uh, that's the way I'd look at it. But the thing is, and this is, even though my undergraduate and graduate studies are in math and computer science, I am not a scientist. I am not a software engineer. I'm not a programmer. And if you are a technology individual and you're very good at a certain kind of programming or development or, or data science, let's say, it might be very different than what I was saying right now, right? Because you can apply data science literally in an insurance company. If you're hard today, data science is used in almost every place from airlines to retailers. So I, you have to watch out. We're, I think if we're talking about the, the leadership team, maybe in these kind of organizations, but often the technology team is more important than leadership, right? And you can throw these guys out. And as long as the technology will stay. So we've got to be careful on that because I think if you're on the technology side, you should probably stay at the cutting edge of the technology, which can be applied in many different places. It's just not where I'm coming from. Right, right. But this idea of um, being irreplaceable, we should throw that out and just think of a way to really make yourself valuable in terms of what industry you're going into and what are the needs of the industry. That's my opinion. Yes. My subjective <laughs> well, opinion. Well, we're asking for your opinion. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. As, as you said, that's right. That's the way I see it. Okay. And now for my last question, I wanted to just hear your opinion regarding this whole phenomenon of unicorn companies coming out of Israel. And there's been a huge surge of them lately. So I wanted to know what you think of this whole era that we're seeing. And also, what do you think makes Israel unique in the sense that we are able to create all of these startups that have been very successful? I'll answer the last question first. Okay. I think the uniqueness of the Israeli capability, and this has been way before the unicorns, the last, let's right. say, 30 years. No, we've been the startup nation for a while now. Right. And we've got to be careful in the startup nation because like the company mentioned there in the beginning isn't around anymore. And even before the startup nation, we, we were the startup. But so the right. thing is, there were, even in, in, in the year 2000, there were, I think, the second most companies publicly traded on NASDAQ came out of Israel. And startup nation was only written much later than that. But in any event, I th what I think it is, is first of all, if we talk about what makes a successful entrepreneur or a founder, it is this perseverance. It's being able to address challenges and changes. And we didn't say it, but actually improvise when required and look at Israel as a country and us as, you know, I, my friends in, in the U.S., right? when you're 20 some odd years in Israel, you've gone through a lot, obviously, including your military service, even without. It's just, it's just a very, very crazy place. <laughs> and that is what is required for when you're building a business, Okay especially now also we're a very global place. And so it's not as if you're in the UK selling to the UK or in the US selling to the US or you're in Israel selling to the world. You're not selling to Israel. So, so Small that, market. Exactly. And so that's number one. So I think this whole part about perseverance and enjoying, we, we wouldn't be here unless we liked it in Israel, right? And so we like this kind of challenges all the time and uh, we might visit New York, but we come back, right? Right, so, we like the dynamic we, uh, and, kind of and, lifestyle. And that, and, and that is the dynamic of being an entrepreneur, right? So I think that's number one. Number two is in order to do all of this, we teach ourselves a lot. We learn from our mistakes. We're always, we're not necessarily good at doing something structured, but we're good at getting things done, which is, again, part of this, of us, you know, we're talking about, you know, what is required from someone who's building a company. And then the third thing is the technology. And what has happened is in Israel, I think, the fact that, you know, we go through our military service, which is part of life here, even today, even though it's not like when I was a kid, but still, most of us go to do some kind of military service. Today, a lot of people go into technology units, but in my time, we were much more of us when I was in the Navy and in combat units, that kind of stuff. But you're taught to do things at a young age of 18, 19 that you're never taught in the US. You're not even, you know... You're just so you're taught how to um, address all sorts of challenges and changes. And again, part of that building company. What's happened over the last 20 or 30 years is that a lot has been invested in technology. The world militaries are all based on technology. 
So it's been such an important part. And so Israel has invested in technology and they identify people in high school. Right. And then bring them in at the young age of 18. They, some of them, you know, take them through college or not. Some of the best people don't, never went, never met, some of them didn't even finish high school. But they're taken into doing things in technology, age of 18, 19, 20. No, people usually don't do ever in their life. And they're getting trained and doing all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, at a young age of 25, if they'd, after they've been seven years in the service, let's say, they have a better technology background and have done things that people, nobody else in the world have. And that's where, combined with everything we said before, I think has made a major impact. I think we saw it, and by the way, especially in data analytics, because that's what is required in, in military, and that's what a lot intelligence of intelligence units yeah, and such. I mean, there's always the, the, there's the hardware and weapon systems, but that's right. I'm talking about that. I'm talking about the and so if maybe 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, people, or maybe 15 years ago, would come out of the military and do start ad tech, you know, advertising technology companies mm-hmm. or market tech companies. That was the big play then, some very substantial right, companies around there. And then they maybe did, I don't know, before that, they did telecos and their ad tech. But I think now what's happened, they're doing insure tech, which is one of the reasons that Israel is so successful in the world of uh, insure tech. Last word on unicorns. I don't like the word unicorn. I don't like the fact that we measure companies by their value based, especially not on, on price. I mean, hey, Valuation. I, do, I like it. I'm yeah. in the industry and it's great. I mean, they don't, but a company should be valued by the value it provides its customers. And it's important. And the fact that, you know, a unicorn is a very prominent way of measuring the growth and success of a company, but. Uh, you shouldn't be fooled by this metric is what I, you're saying. Yeah. I, the metric is, it's a number. That's what I'm saying. And again, it's all, it's like, you know, high tide or low tide. Right, right. Every, I mean, every, what, five years ago, $500 million was a lot of money, wasn't it? <laughs> today, no. I mean, and today, in the good old days, a unicorn was a big money. Today, if you're not, what is $1 billion? You know, we'd, I don't, this thing about unicorns is not, is I think the value provided and I think the potential in the world of, of technology for insurance is huge, as I mentioned before. Right, there's I a don't glamorized. Think we have to measure it by by unicorns. Exactly. No, there's this kind of, I guess, um, glamorization that's happening around the word unicorn. Yes. But we should stay, you know, with a sober mind and actually look at what is the value that these companies are providing for their consumers, for the industry. Exactly. Okay. Wonderful, David. Thank you so much for taking part in the unicorn series and for this fascinating conversation. My pleasure. For everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in to The Bigger Picture. I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Roni Firon. This is The Bigger Picture. And thank you for listening. Until next time. Until next time.